0: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with C.S. Harris about her Sebastian Sincere Mysteries, a series that now consists of 18 novels, starting with What Angels Fear. The series takes place during the last years of George III and the regency of his son, popularly known as Prinny, but in reality another George, eventually crowned as George IV. The backdrop is the Napoleonic Wars from the perspective of the English side. And although for much of my life as a reader the period was claimed by the likes of Georgette Hare, C. S. Harris has led the way in portraying a much grittier, more complex view of Regency society than Hare's Love Struck Aristocrats. This is obvious from the first sentences of Who Cries for the Lost. London, Tuesday, 13th June, 1815. The dead man smelled like fish, rotting fish. Pale, bloodless, and faceless, he lay on the stained granite slab in the center of Paul Gibson's ancient stone outbuilding, filling the small room with a foul stench. But then bodies pulled from the Thames did have a nasty tendency to reek of fish. Fish, brine, tar, and, if it was warm and they'd been in the water long enough, decay. The outbuilding stood at the base of a newly planted garden that stretched out behind the mediaeval Tower Hill house where Gibson kept his surgery, and he paused now in the doorway to suck in one last breath of fresh, rose scented air before entering the room. The morning was damp and chilly, the sky a low, menacing grey, the ache from Gibson's truncated left leg sharp enough that he winced as he limped forward. Irish by birth, he was thinner than he should have been, and younger than he looked. His dark hair already heavily laced with gray. The long grooves that bracketed his mouth dug deep. Pain had a way of doing that to a man. Pain and the opium he used to control it. And now, please join me in welcoming C.S. Harris. Thank you, Candy. I look forward to talking with you today. Good morning, thank you for having me. I've read most of the books in this series, but you also have more than a few novels that have nothing to do with Sebastian Viscount Devlin. Could you start by telling us first how you came to write fiction, and second, what drew you eventually to Sebastian as a character?
1: Well, I actually sort of fell into writing fiction. It wasn't something that I grew up wanting to do. I grew up wanting to be an archaeologist, and um, I was waiting on a residence visa to australia when i was about 20 years old i just finished university and um i read a really horrible book and i said to my mother i could it was so horrible i could do better than that and she said well i'm sure you could and and it was just one of those kind of funny things that happened at a time when i had time because i was you know waiting and so i sat down and wrote uh, just for fun I wrote a, a book and i'm sure it was Ten times more horrible than the book that I had been criticizing, but I had so much fun doing it that I sort of tucked it away in the back of my head that it was something that I wanted to do someday. Um, so I then went off and you know traveled around the world, worked as an archaeologist, went back to graduate school, got a PhD in history, and became a history professor. But I always always had this idea where I wanted to do it. So when I was in my thirties, um, I was living in the Middle East. I had two kids. I I left academics, sort of not deliberately, but that's the way it turned out. So I thought, well, I'll try writing. Um, and I started out writing historical romances. They were popular at the time. And uh, they were really, the books I wrote were really more <clears throat> um, historical adventures with, with a love story in them. Um, and... I I wrote, I actually published seven of those books under my my real name, which is Candace Proctor. And then I reached the point that the the genre itself was changing and I was becoming more interested in writing a different kind of story. And that's when I switched uh, to writing historical um, mysteries. And uh, I came up with Sebastian because I, my, Area of specialty um, was the French Revolution, Napoleonic period. So at one time, I was thinking about maybe writing a series set in Revolutionary Paris. But I, I you know, it's a really depressing time. I wrote a book about a history book about it, and I thought, you know, when you write fiction, you have to delve into the emotion so deeply. I thought I don't want, to, you know, I would, I wouldn't, especially with a series where you're doing it for years and years. I thought I just don't want to live in that in that period in my head and that's why I thought well I'll move I'll move across the channel to to London during the regency period so it would be the same period same you know I could use my historical background but it would be wouldn't be so depressing
0: so that's how I, Sebastian and I came together Describe Sebastian himself as a personality. Where is he in his life at the moment in What Angels Fear when we first encounter him?
1: He's, uh, in the very beginning of the series, Sebastian uh, has just come back from uh, the wars. He is the... um, He's the younger son and youngest uh, son and uh, heir of both of his older brothers have died of the, of an Earl, um, the Earl of Hendon. And he has, so he always wanted, because he was the younger son, he always planned to go into the army. And even when his brothers died, it was something he still did. But when the book uh, starts, he has just come back from the wars. He is very traumatized by his experiences in the wars, both the things he has seen and the things that he personally has done. So he's in, as do many veterans, uh, even today, he was having a hard time coming to terms with that uh, emotionally. And he was having a hard time fitting back into civilian life. So he was, it's a very traumatized period in his Life. He does not have good relations with either his um, his father or his surviving sibling, a sister, and so he's just kind of at loose ends. And when we with the when the series starts, he actually gets accused of murder, and and he goes on the run to try to uh, clear himself and discover who the the actual murderer was. And so that's how he gets involved uh, in uh, solving murders uh, as the series goes on.
0: He's been through a lot since his debut, although the 18 books take place over the course of about four years. What are his chief concerns now at the opening of Who Cries for the Lost? How have those four years changed him?
1: Well, the four years see a a, a lot uh, um, uh, a, a lot goes on in his personal life at the same time as the mysteries uh, are being solved. When I first plotted out the came up with the idea for the series, I wanted to. Make sure that I had had a story arc for the uh, Sebastian as a character, not just Sebastian, but all the other characters in the book have a personal story arc that he goes through. So as time progresses, he finds out that a lot of secrets have been hidden. From him about his mother, uh, about his father, who his father actually was, what actually happened to his mother. He thinks at the beginning he thinks she's dead, then he discovers that she was not, um, didn't die when he thought she had, uh, and he uh, has <clears throat> um, so he has in addition to trying to come to terms with the trauma that he suffered in the war, he's also having to to uh, come to terms with who he personally is, uh, reevaluate. Um, that his relationship with other people by the time uh, this uh, book starts who cries for the lost he's has uh, been married for several years he has a child so a lot of what he has uh, gone through um, has stabilized by this point although he is still recovering from what happened in the the last book, which is when he finds his mother and she's murdered, so so he's still trying to recover from from that trauma. Um, but he is he is in a very different place from what he he was in 1811 when the series starts.
0: This novel begins on June 13th, 1815, which any reader is steeped in the history of the Napoleonic. I'm sorry. Napoleonic Wars will immediately recognize as a few days before the Battle of Waterloo, but of course your characters don't know that. Uh, why did you start the novel on that specific day?
1: Well, I, I wanted to uh, to show the effects of the uh, the well, not just the effects, but the the whole period surrounding Waterloo is is usually when when his, when novelists. Uh, portray it. They like to go to Belgium and, and, you know, show it that the people in Brussels and, and how it affects them. But I wanted to show London at that time because everyone knew this, uh, this epic battle was coming. And so they were uh, uh, really on pins and needles waiting to hear, <clears throat> waiting to hear what happened. And so that was, that's why I picked this particular period, you know, with everyone in London is waiting to to hear uh, that the fighting has started and then what the outcome of the battle was. And it's, we're so used to living in this period of instant news that uh, the Waterloo was fought on the 18th you know, on a Sunday. And it wasn't until late at night on Wednesday that they actually heard what had happened, you know, who had won. So, so that is the the background against which the 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 mystery story takes place is, is what's happening in London in terms of while they're waiting to hear and why don't they hear and there's uh, it's very well documented so you three or four different groups of people came to London at that time from the continent. Some of what they said was completely wrong, and so it, it, it panicked people. stock market was kept going up and down in response to it. So that's the background against which the the mystery takes place.
0: The person whose point of view we encounter first is not Sebastian himself, but his good friend Paul Gibson. Tell us about Paul and what connects him with Sebastian. Well,
1: um, Paul Gibson is is a was a uh, regimental surgeon, so that's how he got to know. Sebastian was when they were in the war, so they they knew each other for years until um, Gibson had his uh, leg uh, shot off, and he suffers from uh, from phantom pains as a result of the amputation of the lower part of his leg. So he finally had to to leave the army. He has gone back to London and set up a surgery. And he also uh, teaches uh, anatomy. So he's an anatomist and he does um, autopsies, postmortems for the authorities. And so that, that is his role in the books is he he's also he's on the one hand, he is Sebastian's friend, but he also is, is this anatomist who does these, uh, you know, the, who supplies the forensic knowledge, which is fairly limited at the time. Um, but of course, he's a smart guy, so he sees things that maybe other people wouldn't see. He suffers, he suffers from an opium addiction because of his phantom pain. So that also plays, plays a role in the books.
0: How the victim ended up dead, and at whose hand is the question driving the novel, as one would expect from a murder mystery, but you do reveal the victim's identity early on what What should we know about him
1: well the the victim, the first victim in the book is a, a Major Miles Sedgwick, who is someone that Sebastian actually knew when he was in the army, both men and for served for a time as exploring officers for Wellington. Uh, so Sebastian knew him in the past, but he also um, uh, connected to Gibson because it, he was involved in a bigamous marriage with um, with Gibson's uh, lover, Alexis Sauvage, a French woman. He's uh, he's very bad. When the body is found, it's very badly mutilated, and he, we very quickly f- discover that he was he was not a nice person. He had alienated a lot of people and so it then becomes a matter of you know, finding out who the many people who had something against him killed him um and also it does it very quickly it discovers that he was still involved in um even though he's no longer in the army he was still involved in in sort of espionage so there's another uh, angle to it and and it becomes increasingly important for Sebastian too uh, discover who the real murderer is because, since because of his uh, previous relationship with Alexei Sofage, uh Gibson himself um, becomes under suspicion of murder.
0: One of your interesting recurring characters is Sir Henry Lovejoy. Um, tell us a bit about him and how Sebastian comes to be involved in solving this crime independently of his friendship with Paul.
1: Uh Sir Henry Lovejoy is one of the three stipendary magistrates at uh, Bow Street uh, Public Office. And at the time, you know, after the Acts of 1829 that created the um, Metropolitan Police Force, they didn't move to have magistrates so that they only dealt with court cases the way that we think of judges today. But uh, at the time in the uh, um, you know, in eighteen fifteen uh, the magistrates actually still played uh, a certain they they not only sat in court and had summary judgments but they also played a part in investigating um, crimes and so that is a, the the role that that uh, Sir Henry plays in, in the, uh, the investigation, because it's, because it's such a high profile victim uh, uh, um, son of an Earl who is killed. It's, it's in Bow streets and the palace's interest to, to solve it quickly and to at least, or at least to have an appearance of having solved it. And so love joy is, is, Actually, an old friend of—well, he's a four-year-old friend, I guess, of Sebastian's. He was the the man who was charged with um, making sure that that Sebastian is caught um, when he is being accused of um, murder in the very first book. So that was love. That in that book, Lovejoy is is chasing Sebastian to see him uh, convicted of murder. But after that, they, they learn to respect each other as a result of, of the events of that time. And so they have worked together since then to, to solve cases, mainly cases which are of such a nature as it's likely that really justice will not be done unless somebody else helps make sure that it is. That's Sebastian's role.
0: As you mentioned, Sebastian is married. By this point, uh, do tell us something about his uh, wife, Hero. Um, her personality and her social projects. I mean, she's just a fascinating character to me.
1: Well, Hero is uh, the she's she. When the book begin, she's Hero Jarvis. She's the uh, daughter of the man uh, who is who's basically uh, Sebastian's nemesis, Lord Jarvis, and. She's a she's a very intelligent, very well educated woman who decided very young that she was not going to ever marry because she didn't like the laws that of England at the time, which basically um, put a, a wife under the power of a husband. So she has she's she's a very open minded, very um, what we would call today liberal minded uh, person, and she has. Uh, and since she has married Sebastian, she has started writing a series of articles on the working poor of um, London. And, and so this is, helps her to also help hit Sebastian in his, um, in his investigation. She's a very, she's, she's a lot like her father. She's, she's has a hard side to her. She's a very tall woman. She's, almost six feet tall she's um she knows how to shoot a gun and she doesn't hesitate to do it so she's a she's a very strong woman in an age when that was really not particularly common and she's well I mean I think women there have always been strong women but she's one of the she because of her position she was She's able to show that strength. She doesn't feel any kind of need to, to camouflage it the way so many of the women of her station in life did.
0: As you mentioned, one person who really dislikes uh, Sebastian, barely tolerates him, even as a son-in-law, is uh, Hero's father, Charles Jarvis. What lies behind the, um, the, the animus between them? Because Sebastian's not too fond of Jarvis either. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it all it actually starts in the very first book when Sebastian is accused of uh, murder, and that's at a very delicate time because that was the book starts when they're getting ready to uh, proclaim the regency, and so there's a lot of unrest. And so Jarvis thinks Jarvis is very much he's a very, uh, very intelligent, very ruthless, very man who's very much dedicated to preserving the monarchy of England and, and extending British power in the world. And he'll do anything. That's his, that's what he's dedicated to. He'll do it, do literally almost anything to, uh, to achieve that. And so, and he's, he's focused on seeing the regency proclaimed and he has this Lord's son, uh, Sebastian running, you know, running around, uh, accused of murder and the only, he just wants Sebastian dead, you know, so that they can just say, oh, he killed this person and we've dealt with it. So he's basically trying to have Sebastian killed in the first book. So that's what starts the animus. And then the, it continues because just because of who Sebastian is, he's very ruthless and he, he will do anything to preserve the monarchy even if it means that an innocent person has to, to suffer, whereas Sebastian very much wants To see justice done for, um, and he doesn't want to see innocent people punished, and so that becomes a running uh, battle between them. And then it's exacerbated in the third book, uh, Why Mermaids Sing, when when Jarvis uh, threatens uh, a woman who, at that time, Sebastian was very much in love with. Um, And then, of course, Jarvis is really not happy when his daughter turns around and marries him. So. So it's a it's a long running battle between them.
0: I have to ask you about the Dowager Duchess of Claiborne. She's another one of my favorite characters. What is her role in the novels?
1: <laughs> her role is basically she's a she's a the um, the widow of a duke. She's the uh, older sister of Suba- the man who's known to the world as, as Sebastian's father, the Earl of Hendon. And, uh, she is, uh, she's an old, you know, she's in her seventies. She's one of the, the grand dames of society and she has paid attention through all the years and she's, uh, has a very good memory to, she's paid attention to all of the scandals and, and so she knows the all of the history of the people that the prominent people who end up dead or who are suspects in murder. So she's basically Sebastian's go-to source if he needs information on different, the background of different people. Uh, And she's, she's also, uh, she keeps him kind of on an even keel because she, she's, She's a very practical person, and so she's kind of a counterpoint in some ways, too.
0: The Napoleonic Wars are not just a time frame for these novels. They spew off plot points in the form of espionage and intrigue that is every bit as cutthroat as anything going on in the modern world. Could you say a bit about The Isle of Cabrera, not how it affects your story, which would give away spoilers, but as a historical event? It was, by modern standards, a war crime, uh, but I, for one, had never heard about it.
1: It it is an incident and I think that all all three of the nations involved in it have tended to to kind of try to sweep under the rug because it is so unbelievably horrible. Uh it came about uh after the Battle of Baylem in the uh in Spain when the uh the French lost that battle and the Spaniards captured um thousands of prisoners of war all together between that battle and then a couple of other battles that the prisoners were all grouped together they had about 25,000 prisoners and they didn't know what to do with them and so under the terms of the surrender agreement that the French and Spaniards made the Spaniards were supposed to send these prisoners back to uh to France and the British, so they, they moved them to Calais, and they were going to load them on transport ships and send them. And the the British said, you can't do that. You know, we don't need these 25,000 uh, troops <clears throat> sent back to fight another day. And so the Spaniards were like, well, what do we do with them? In the meantime, these these poor prisoners of war set on these these transport ships and basically were dying hundreds of them a day until the... And they said, Well we have to do something and the and the British said, we'll send them to to uh to this little island, uh Cabrera, which was by the uh Mallorca and Minorca. And so that's what they said if you try to send them back to France, we'll basically pull your transport out of the water. So the, the Spanish sent these these prisoners of war to this Cabrera, which was this tiny little deserted Island in the middle of the, the Mediterranean, and it um, there was no food, there was no well. They had one spring which would go uh, dry in the summer. There was no shelter. It was like Robinson Crusoe, but with you know, fifteen thousand men, some women and children, and no ship for them to to. Uh, scavenge from for shelter food and everything and so uh, they, they died They horrible um, rates especially at the very beginning when there was more of them they were dying hundreds and hundreds of them a day and, and a lot of them went crazy uh, it, a lot of them starved to death they, they resorted to cannibalism a lot of them just jumped off the cliffs into the into the water it was and by the time the they were there for five years, and nobody knows exactly how many there were sent because they were sending some – after the first group of prisoners, they later sent more, but they didn't keep really good track of how many they sent. But by the time that the war was over, uh, the, the survivors were between three and 5,000. So okay, it was a really horrible incident that nobody, like none of the <laughs> none of the nations involved, want to talk about it because it was so horrible. I suppose. And how did you find out about it? Um, I have a I have a book called Prisoners of Cabrera that um, I have a lot of books on my shelves that I have never read, and I was just thumbing through them one day and pulled it off and thought, you know, I've never read this. And so I, and this was some years ago that I did sit down and and read it. And I thought, oh, I should, you know, try to use that sometime. But at the time, I couldn't see uh, how I could use it. And so that was, you know, I finally worked it in. Yeah, So that's that's where a lot of my ideas for these books come from is I'll see something that interests me. I want to look into it a little bit more and then and it it inspires me to create the thread in a you know in one of the one of the books.
0: So another theme in this novel is the study of folklore, including witches and werewolves, which brings us to the Weird Sisters. Introduce them to us, please, and talk about why you included them and in this element of the tale.
1: Well, that's I guess that's another example of things that come from <laughs> from outside. Um, during the uh, during the pandemic, I didn't see my my two daughters because um, they tried to stay away from us because they both were working and they didn't want to expose us and so they, they both live in Texas anyway and we were living in New Orleans. started a classics book club where we would um, take turns picking a classic book that that one of us wanted to read and then the rest of us would read it or reread it if we'd read it in the past and then we'd get together and on on FaceTime and we'd discuss it. So we read, you know, we read The Art of War, we read The Prince, and someone I don't even remember who picked Macbeth. And I hadn't read it since, probably since I was in school. And so it was when I was reading it uh, that I just I just came across The Weird Sisters and I thought, oh, it would be kind of neat to put, you know, to do a takeoff on, on The Weird Sisters in my next Sebastian book, and I had already been toying with the idea of putting in uh, someone who was studying folklore because this was a time when there was increasing interest recognition that that folklore was being lost, and so this is the time when the brothers Grimm were writing down fairy tales in Germany, and a lot of uh, scholars were were working hard to to write down fairy tales and old ballads before, because they realized they were being lost. Which is fortunate that that they did, because that so much would have been lost very quickly if they hadn't done that. So I kind of sort of wove those two things together the, with the folklore around witches and the um, the persecution of witches. With the, the weird sisters who who are are these sisters who own a, you know a, um they they practice uh they read tarot cards and and uh, do a, uh, practice astrology and sell love potions and stuff like that in a in a shop down in St. Giles. So it's just another one of those things I was interested in, so I wove it into the book.
0: <laughs> what would you like people to take away from Sebastian and Hero's adventures?
1: You know, I I think that the thing that's most important to me is that that people just enjoy reading the books. Uh, you know, and fiction, especially when I was younger, was such a huge part of my life in terms of losing myself in a in a book and being swept away for, to another time and another place and experiencing. Life through other characters' uh, eyes, who were living different lives from what I had, or had different personalities from what I had, and so I, th- I think my my the w- most important thing to me is just if I can give that gift to my readers to uh, to enjoy the, the the books and to and maybe also learn more about the period. Oh, that's so that's a much lesser uh, goal, really, just to see the period and to see the ways in which it differed and also the ways in which it is so similar to, to our lives today.
0: Waterloo marks the end of the Napoleonic era. Um, will Sebastian's adventures continue? And if so, what can we expect from him next?
1: Well, you know, there was a time when I actually thought about uh, ending the series in 1815, but I have now decided to to go all the way to 1820, uh, which is because of the series started with the proclamation of the Regency. It seems like it'd be a nice, you know, uh, complete to c- complete the series when when uh, George III dies, and then the regent becomes king. So that's sort of my goal now, is to take it up to to the end of the regency. Um, The next book in the series, which will be number 19, and I really cannot believe that we're all the way up to 19 already, will be uh, What Cannot Be Said. The title is taken from the uh, Sappho. Uh, fragment that what cannot be said must be wept. And it actually is still sort of tied to the Napoleonic period because it takes place, um, I, I guess, a little over a month after, after Who Cries for the Lost. So it's set um, <clears> that what cannot be said is set at the time when Napoleon um, surrenders to the Captain of a British Ship, and then he is brought back to England, and he sits off the coast of of Southern England on a British warship while the uh the powers that be in London try to decide what they want to do with them, are they going to give him back to the French, who are going to hang him? You now uh, are they going to imprison him? You know, on are they going to just let him go? What you know, what are they going to do? So that's the background against which the the next book uh, plays out.
0: Well, that's something else I didn't know about. I'm I didn't realize there was this interim. In any case, I'm very glad that we can look forward to more adventures um, and mysteries with, that involve Sebastian because I've become quite attached to him, and I want to see how things are going to develop for him. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I really appreciate it, and I wish you happy writing. Oh,
1: thank you so much. I always enjoy talking about Sebastian and his friends.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with C.S. Harris about Who Cries for the Lost, as well as the previous novels in this series. Find out more about her at csharris.net. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.